opinions of the United Nations range widely across the political spectrum. From progressives that think that the UN is essentially good, to conservatives that criticize the organization for being corrupt or mismanaged. But one critic of the UN that does not get nearly enough credit is Ayn Rand. And Rand's criticism of the UN was unique because it was philosophical. And it was a moral assessment of the core principles of the organization. So today we will be exploring what those criticisms by Ayn Rand were. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara-Sid, I'm a research associate at ARI, and joining me today is Elan Giorno, senior fellow at ARI. Welcome, Elan. Hi, Agustina. So, um, Elan, I would like to, to begin by talking a little bit about the fact that the, what I just mentioned, that Ayn Rand doesn't get nearly enough credit for her views on the UN, which are literally unique. Um, and it may surprise some people that she even had, like to learn that she even had these views about the UN and how strong and they were and how much she, like, like our title of the podcast is how much she repudiated the UN. Um, but I, I think in a way, this shouldn't be surprising if you, if you know Ayn Rand in a way, because she was very engaged with the cultural issues and the political issues of, of, her, of her time, right? And back when she started criticizing the UN, the organization was a big deal and it had like a very strong reputation, even more so than today. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on her career trajectory. So after she finished Atlas Shrugged, the next phase of her career was to write nonfiction primarily and to give speeches and, and speak out on the application of her ideas to the public. And I think she was interested in making people more aware of what her philosophy really meant in practice and for one's life. And that is a way to understand why she was so engaged with the world. I think she, she was engaged with the world because she understood and was interested in what was going on in the world and explaining it. And that was sort of fit with her agenda of writing and speaking. And she, she started a publication, a periodical, so, and I think it speaks to her being a philosopher who was connected to the real world and she wanted to understand what it, what it took to live and to, to make one's way in the world and to solve the problems that stand in the way of achieving one's happiness and what is the path towards a free society. That was one of the themes in her thinking. So a lot of people think of her as primarily a novelist and they, they might know there's some philosophy there, but she was a philosopher and novelist. She was both of those things. And this is the, the issue we're going to be discussing comes up in that phase of her career where she's more focused on bringing her ideas in nonfiction form to many people. So there's a lot more to her than most people realize. And I think she was interested in a wide range of things, too. So it's worth just stressing uh, over 20 years, she gave annual lectures at a historic forum in Boston called the Ford Hall Forum. And the range of topics she covered there probably will surprise people. So from abortion to capitalism, to the draft, to inflation, to the religious right. So she had a very wide range of interests and topics. So I think the UN is one of the issues that was alive, uh, much more prominent, I think, back then than it is to many people today. And if you think the context is 
the Cold War is going on and the UN is supposed to be a forum where some of these conflicts uh, can be de-escalated and can be allegedly resolved through conversation and so forth. So the UN loomed larger than it does today in many ways. And she was really vested in understanding what was going on and explaining it through the framework of her philosophy of objectivism. Yes, and, and she also said about the UN that it was, so part of her criticism, and we will explore why she, she said things like this, but she said that the UN was beyond contempt and that it merely, merely warranted any discussion. And can, can you tell us a little bit more why she thought of, of that, like that? Yeah, we, we should get into a bit more of the substance of her view, but it was, she thought that the, the moral standing of the organization was really the issue to think about when you think about the UN. And when you look at it, uh, at the time she was commenting on in various interviews and in some of her essays, she comments on the UN as an example of how things go wrong when people compromise on moral principles. When you look at it in the context of the world as, as she witnessed it, it, it should, I think in her view, a lot of things should have been obvious to people that probably weren't obvious because she was just so much smarter than most people. But I think in this case, it was, a, it was, well, look at who's in the UN. Look at how this organization is behaving. And if you need more help, okay, think about it, but you should be able to see something as stark as this. So maybe we should dive into what, what that really looks like. Uh, one of the major issues she points to is you know, you know, you, you mentioned that her analysis was philosophical, and we can say a bit about how people today criticize the UN as a, as a contrast, and maybe we'll sketch that out a bit before I dive into her view. So, I mean, you mentioned just a few minutes ago in setting up the conversation that there are this, this sort of progressive critiques and there's conservative critiques, and what they have in common and what they differ on is not that big. So they, they differ on the kinds of things they think are going wrong, but they, the commonality is often, well, the UN is a really important thing. We just need to make it work. We acknowledge the problems, we need to make it work. And she comes to this issue with a very different perspective. It's not the UN is an obvious need or how could we even think about getting rid of it? I think the, her view is, well, why does this even exist? And does it exist on a sound moral basis? And her assessment that it's beneath contempt or beyond any sort of serious reputable discussion is you look at how the UN was behaving at the time and, and the, the membership of the UN, and you, you should stop and think, this, does this even make sense? So when we talk about her analysis, he, here's one of the major things. So the founding of this organization, maybe we should just give a bit of context for the founding of the organization. For people who don't remember the high school civics or if you're in high school and this is new to you. So the UN arises out of the ashes of World War II and it's seen as a really important instrument for nations to solve disagreements and to uh, avoid conflicts because the, the memory of World War II and even World War I is really fresh in people's uh, thinking. And she took that seriously. She thought, well, if the UN is really an agency for resolving conflicts and avoiding war and, and upholding rights, which would be the, the implication of doing those things, does it even begin to do that? And what would it look like to do that? So I mean, tell us, maybe I'll hand this back to you. So um, 
in thinking about her critique, what is one of the issues that come up in terms of the, the organization of the UN and who's part of it? Yes, yeah, so um, I think that, so like you said, like in the decades after the UN's founding, uh, the organization enjoyed a great you know, deal of popularity. And this was because it was seen as a solution for to avoid conflicts like World War II. And, uh, but Ren had an approach about this that she identified that this was not going to be possible. Like you said, she said, why does this exist and can this organization actually achieve its goals? And she thought that the answer was, was no. And the approach was, uh, like I said before, it was unique and philosophical against all these other views, you know, by, you know, progressives and conservatives that ultimately boil down to, you know, there's these, like you said, there's a lot of problems with the UN, but they can ultimately, you know, by making certain tweaks and, you know, modifications and reforming the UN, which has been a big proposition, uh, we can make it work. But Ayn Rand thought, no, you just cannot make this type of organization work because it is corrupt from the, from, from the very core. So Ayn Rand makes this moral evaluation of the UN uh, and about its goals and the moral principles it was founded on and how these, how these very principles that it was founded on make it unable to achieve the alleged goals you know, of, of, key, of peacekeeping and, and protecting human rights. And going one step further, what it does is it enables the exact opposite to happen. So it enables kind of like evil to, to resurface and, and, and to gain prominence. Um, so Rand, so contra most of the critics of the UN that we see today and that we have seen since the, since the beginning of the organization, she thought that the organization was doomed from the beginning and that is beyond repair. But I like where she starts with this analysis, which like I said, she starts from the very inception of the UN. And she starts by analyzing the moral implications that of, of the composition of the UN, of the, of the charter members of the UN and the Security Council, and how, what that composition at the beginning of the UN, what that told us about the moral nature of the organization. So yes, go ahead. So tell, tell us a bit about, so just historically, what, what are some of the countries that became part of the UN and what, I think there's something to be said about the selection and the sort of status that they had. Maybe you just flesh that out. Yeah, so the charter members, which become the, what they call the permanent five of the security council as well, which is like the main uh, body of the UN. So the, the founding members, the charter members of the UN included Soviet Russia, China, the US, the UK, and France. So Soviet for context, just for context, Soviet Russia, uh, for those who don't remember what happened in Soviet Russia, Soviet Russia was a brutal, bloody dictatorship that among other things conducted, you know, confiscation of private property, um, oppressed dissenters, sometimes either by killing them directly or by imprisoning them, imprisoning them in, in gulags. 
Um, they also uh, designed a famine in the Ukraine, as some may remember, and perpetrated count, literally countless atrocities and killed millions of people. And then on the other hand, in the, as, a, as a charter member, you have the United States, the, the United Kingdom and France, which are essentially free countries that had uh, a, 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 not just a basic, but generally a really good respect of individual rights as opposed to this bloody dictatorship of, of, uh, of Russia. And uh, so the fact that they, that in, in the UN's founding, they put the bloodiest dictatorship of all time, as I might call it, next to these free or essentially free countries that had a much bigger respect for individual rights, that should tell us something. And there's a quote from Ayn Rand from an interview um, that she, it's, it's a actually a pretty well-known interview that she gave in 1962, if I remember correctly, for the Playboy magazine. And she's asked, asked about the, the UN, and the question is if she would favor the US's withdrawal from the organization. And her response was, yes, I do not sanction the grotesque pretense of an organization allegedly devoted to war, peace, and human rights, which includes Soviet Russia, the worst aggressor and bloodiest butcher in history as one of its members. The notion of protecting rights with Soviet Russia, um, with Soviet Russia, excuse me, among the protectors is an insult to the concept of rights and to the intelligence of any man who is asked to endorse or sanction such an organization. I do not believe that an individual should cooperate with criminals. And for all the same reasons, I do not believe that free countries should cooperate with dictatorships. And close quote. So that was Rand's assessment and that comes from the very beginning of the UN and you, the USSR being included as a, as, a, as a charter member. And, you know, she knows what she's talking about because she doesn't just know what, we, what she saw in the newspaper about Russia, uh, Soviet Russia. She actually escaped that regime to come to the US because she could not stand the brutality of the, op sorry, of the oppression. Let me just add to that. The, that kind of moral neutrality about who becomes a member. And I think the, the case of the USSR is particularly salient because it becomes a member of the Security Council, which has incredible power. It's one of the most powerful portions of the UN in terms of uh, having veto over many decisions and, and being able to set the direction. So that is a, a salient example of the moral neutralities of, of who is allowed to enter. And it wasn't an anomaly. It wasn't an outlier. There's, oh, they just let in Soviet Russia and there's one thing they did wrong. This becomes the, this perspective on who can enter and who can't becomes part of the UN's basic character, this moral neutrality. of We're not going to look at, we recognize that it's, a, as some of them like to call it, some of the leaders of the UN like to call it, we recognize that they are non-democratic countries. But the view that becomes entrenched at the UN is that there is basically no country that's excluded from membership. I mean, they do. There are countries that haven't been allowed in yet, but it's not really because they're totalitarian or or dictatorial or even or, or a combination of those. In fact, many of the countries in the UN since its founding have been added and 
they are, it, it is a, an unsavory mixture of uh, basically free countries like the ones you mentioned, the US, France, Germany, post-war, what Japan became after World War II, which I think is a basically free country. And then you get a, a raft of countries that are some variation on the theme of tyranny. So there's obviously, you mentioned Soviet Russia, and then there are, uh, uh, Fidel Castro becomes a, a hero at the UN after he takes power in Cuba by force and he's given a, a, a world platform. He's not, he's part of, the, Cuba becomes part of the UN, of course. And there is just, a, in looking into the present, the kind of dictatorial and oppressive regimes are the ones at the UN and they're embraced. And it's it, the, the perspective that you get from some of the supporters of the UN is that this is actually a benefit to, to having these uh, uh, regimes that make their own citizens prisoners or slaves. The idea is that the UN then becomes a way for uh, the world to pressure these countries to become better. And the question to ask there is, is that even remotely plausible? Has North Korea become less of a, of a prison state during the years that it's been part of the UN? I don't think there's evidence for that. Has Iran become less of a violator of rights than it was pre previously while it's being, I don't think so. And you can go through every country that's part of it, the UN and look at it. The UN claims and, and there are many steps they take to, to pressure various countries over their conduct. But the essential issue is that there is a, uh, an open door policy for membership, regardless of the moral character of the regime. And there's an indifference to it at the outset. And then I think the issue of using the UN as a, as a means of pressuring them to become better, I think that's a fig leaf to cover up the fact that they do admit and then enable, in fact, these dictatorial regimes to have incredible power. And I think there's more to say here about the, the consequences of letting them in. So um, what do you think then? I mean, you, you've been thinking about the UN quite a bit lately. What's your take on this issue of once you let these regimes in, what happens to them? So I think once you let um, dictatorships and, and regimes that crush individual rights, if you will give them a seat at the table next to some of the most, uh, some of the freest countries in the world, some of the ones that, um, that respect individual rights the most, and you put them next to each other and you give them the same amount of power and the same voice and the same uh, vote, let's say the same capacity to vote on issues, I think you're putting them on par as if they were moral, as if they were equals, as if they were moral equivalent. And they are definitely not. The fact that the US has to sit, well, not to mention Security Council, but General Assembly next to China, who is a brutal, and we have seen a lot of this uh, come in the headlines with, with the coronavirus uh, crisis and, and pandemic, but such a brutal dictatorship. The fact that the US sits next to it and has the same amount of power and that they have to dialogue and cooperate, as I say, and, and compromise. That, that is just, I, I think, provides just the moral legitimacy to evil, regime, to evil regimes by putting them to 
next to actually actually moral moral countries, and it elevates them and enables them to actually keep doing what they're doing because they're uh, legitimizing what they're doing, and they almost never, if I mean, if not never, almost never, get called out at the at the UN for their violations. And the fact that we have these free countries sitting next to them and providing this, in a way, by being passive, providing this moral legitimacy by sitting at the table with these, with these other regimes, I think that's, that's just, just, just atrocious, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've sometimes in various talks and in talking to people one-on-one -on -one and outside of lectures, I sometimes try to analogize what the UN really is like because we, we, I think if you grow up in Western Europe and North America, you often get the picture of the UN as, it's a very rosy picture of an organization with a noble mission and you know, high school students take part in model UN. So there's this idea that there's, you can learn about how things work at the UN and it's a good thing. And I, my, my view of it has grown to become more and more dim. And I think Ayn Rand's insights have really helped me understand what's going on today. I sometimes analogize it to, so this is not a perfect analogy, so bear with me, <laughs> it might fall apart in places, but I think it really ca captures something that's going on. So imagine you're, you're driving down uh, the Pacific Coast Highway and once in a while there'll be a bar or a tavern or something like that. And it turns out that the one you've stopped at is frequented by, uh, by gangsters on motorcycles. I'm not trying to say all of them are bad, but they're just like really unsavory people. And th this is their known place. And once in a while, a hapless tourist who's well-meaning comes along and they buy a drink and they, they go on their way. And it's the presence of these well-meaning uh, law-abiding tourists that make the bar seem reputable. Because if they weren't in there, it would just be these gangsters on motorcycles and all sorts of cutthroats and, and nasty people. And it would have a reputation for what it actually is, which is just a really nasty place that it, uh, gives shelter to people who break the law and do vile and evil things. And I think that's sort of what's happening with the UN. It's the presence of the better countries that gives the UN whatever prestige it has anymore and gives it some moral standing. And by, by extension, as you were, you were arguing, Agustina, the, the countries that be, the, take Cuba or Venezuela or Iran today, all of which are, are, are gro gross violators of human of individual rights, their membership makes them seem better by reflection. And so they're sitting alongside the US or, China or, or, or France or the UK. And they get the, they're able to have some moral cover for the crimes that they do just by being part of the UN. But it doesn't stop there, right? So if you think, I mean, it's important to get part of what's, what's unique in Iran's analysis is the analysis of how evil is parasitic on the good. This is something that really comes out in her uh, novel, Atlas Shrugged in particular. But her view is that evil is, is fundamentally impotent, but it's also parasitic and it really seeks moral cover. And this is something that if you're going to, the people who commit these crimes and carry out these atrocities as the heads of these countries, they need to present themselves as actually not as bad as they actually are. 
So the UN is a means for them to get that. So they, they, um, they're able to present themselves in the eyes of their own victims, but also in the eyes of the world as better than they are. And I think that is the membership of the better countries. They are complicit in that. So, the, so long as they're part of this, the, propping up the UN's reputation by extension, the reputation of these countries is they're helping those uh, totalitarian and tyrannical countries that enslave their people, that destroy freedom. They're helping perpetrate a fraud. Um, so if you think about it, if you're law-abiding, if you're a country that is actually respectful of freedom, and there's no need to have a pretense of a moral character. But if you're constantly crushing your people and stringing them up from, from cranes and, and, and killing them arbitrarily and arresting them and shutting them up because they're critical of the government, there is a desperate need in that case to present yourself and, and to, to deflect moral scrutiny because you know what you're doing and you don't want the scrutiny and, and being part of the UN enables that. I, I, want, I think it's really helpful if we tell people a bit about the, one of the mechanisms where this happens. So I, I'm arguing that being part of the UN by itself gives them a certain kind of moral luster, but the, there's an, uh, a body within the UN called the Human Rights Council. I think it'd be useful if you just sketch out a bit about how did this even come about and then what sort of things happen at the uh, Human Rights Council? Yes, so part of what Rand, um, part of what Rand said was that at the beginning, you know, in the inception, we know by putting Soviet Russia uh, in the, as a charter member and then member of Security Council, you, you are like what she said in a quote, like, putting gangster as a part of a crime fighting committee. So putting the worst possible regime that have actually the opposite interests in mind as the things that they are supposed to be protecting or looking after, you put them in charge of that. So one of the examples of that is the composition of the, of the Human Rights Council. So, uh, the human rights, and th there's been a lot of talk about the Human Rights Council, and, and Yulan have written an article about it, because the level of moral corruption that goes on there. So the Human Rights Council is uh, the main body in the UN that's dedicated to protecting human rights around the globe. And they have a roster of countries that, that rotate, I think their terms is, uh, if I remember correctly, is three years per country. And there's really no standard, no real like factual standard that they need to meet other than being a member of the UN to be part of it. So the consequence is that you in the, in the Human Rights Council, you get countries that are gross violators of human rights. And they get to point the finger to moral regimes and to free countries and condemn them for whatever they deem is they have done wrong and what's funny let's say in a way that it's not funny at all actually that happens in the hrc the human rights council is that these evil regimes that get to sit there and be like i am a protector of, of human rights i mean this very prestigious council that dedicates itself to you know be the watchdog of uh, of human rights around the world 
they never get condemned or almost never get condemned and they are the ones condemning the free countries. And the, like I said, the composition is just like mind blowing how these countries are supposedly a wash of human rights. Like they have countries like Venezuela, like Eritrea, like Cuba, like basically all these horrible dictatorships that do nothing but violate the, the, the freedom of their citizens and their individual rights all the time. Cuba itself, it's one of the worst, if not the worst violators of human rights in the Americas. And we've seen that in the headlines lately with the, with the protests and everything that's been happening. Um, well, let's, so, let's just pause on yes. Venezuela for a minute. So, because I think Venezuela is has gotten a lot more attention than some other countries. Like people have heard about Cuba, there were protests recently, but in general, Cuba is off the radar for most people. Venezuela has been in the news for many years now as its collapse has been unfolding, and we, we've seen the economy. This is even before the pandemic, so the pandemic I think has made things much worse. But you've been following Venezuela. So this is a country that has gone from being one of the, having incredible re resources, natural resources, I think um, one of the, the uh, largest, uh, I think, reserves. I'm not sure exactly how to measure this, but they have incredible natural resources in Venezuela. And yet the country has fallen so uh, into a kind of dictatorial regime where people are not, people were protesting the government even before the pandemic crisis and the the poverty rate in venezuela and this is all engineered i think by the government's policies it's not accidental it's not some catastrophic uh, situation that no one could have foreseen this is government policies made the country one of the poorest to the point where the the, the child ex, um, uh, what's the metric that is often mentioned the um survival rate of children and the uh, uh, standard, the, the life expectancy were, were uh, contrary to trends that have been in place for many years across the world. The, these rates in Venezuela have been declining. So there are parts of Africa where the, the infant mortality rate are impro is improving because people are getting uh, better health care and more wealth. And in Venezuela, th these numbers are going down. So here we have a country that is destroying its own economy. Uh, there is no freedom in, in Venezuela. The, everything is rigged uh, against the people. And, on, and so this is a country that you would think, well, is there, is there no point at which membership from the UN becomes conditional? Well, when would you throw them out? When would you say, oh, you, you, you don't really even honor the, the spirit of the principles of the UN? Uh, so what's the status of, of Venezuela uh, at the UN? So uh, yes, like you said, there's absolutely no freedom in Venezuela. People are literally dying on the streets. Everything has, of course, gotten worse since the pandemic. But even before then, it was just literally a humanitarian crisis going on. It's still going on. Uh, there's absolutely no freedom of anything, not even like freedom of speech. Forget it. Uh, critics of Maduro's regime, like they're constantly harassed, jailed, killed. Anyway, any possible uh, individual right that you can think of, it's violated by the by the Venezuelan government. Um, so there's a lot to say there, but I'll just say that, you know, this record is not a secret. You know, it's very obvious and it's on the headlines and the UN has uh, the capacity to, to uh, 
send people to these countries to the field and report back to the UN on the conditions that are on the conditions in the country. So the UN and everyone else is like very aware of what's going on in Venezuela. But same as with, with, with Cuba, like the most that the UN will do is issue like very tepid recommendations saying like, for example, the HRC saying the HRC would like to see an improvement in the, the government of Venezuela treatments of its citizens, like things like that that really mean absolutely nothing and change absolutely nothing for anyone living in Venezuela. And it, the governments just do not care about these very tepid recommendations. And in fact, uh, you were saying like, why aren't these people expelled? Well, that's a really good question because they, like a country like Venezuela, who is not a charter member, is not a permanent member, could, could be expelled from the UN. But the most that has happened to Venezuela in the UN is that it has lost, lost its, its voting privileges in the General Assembly a couple of times. Um, I think why, why did mainly- lose, Why did it lose those votes? But so you would expect that it lost its votes because of, the, of their brutal human rights violations. But the reason they lost the vote is because they had unpaid dues to, to the organization. So because they were not you know, paying, their, their, paying the, their share to keep uh, the UN going on. So yeah. that is the reason, like not the horrific human rights violations that are happening and that have been happening for years now, but the fact that they have not paid their dues. So that is where the UN draws the line. And that should be really, really telling, telling of the moral character of the UN, I think. So just on that theme of gangsters and ch so to pick up the, to echo some of what Ayn Rand was saying uh, many years ago, the UN is like putting gangsters in, as part of a crime fighting committee. I think that theme really continues through the present with, you mentioned the human rights council that exists today and, and influential members of that committee vote in a block often and they often gang up on uh, Israel in particular. So I interviewed Hillel Neuer uh, some time ago. People can find that podcast on our, uh, our website, New Ideal, and on, on YouTube. And one of the things he brings out in his work as, a, as an observer of the UN is that there is a pronounced bias or a pronounced, uh, you can even say, uh, continual focus on Israel to the exclusion of every other country in the UN whose crimes are much not debatable and certainly uh, well known to everyone and there, there isn't anything like that the same kind of focus so you, on the one hand you get countries like Venezuela are, are, they're, get a slap on the wrist for not paying their dues but everything else that they do in which they oppress their own people that is go, that doesn't really get anything uh, uh, any sort of punishment and you get a, a country that is I think really on the premise of protecting freedom and trying to be conscientious about it, it becomes a uh, uh, the disproportionately focused on at the Human Rights Council, where you have, um, I think one of the, the statistics that comes up is that Israel was, for, for, the, for I think the first 10 years of the existence of the Human Rights Council, Israel was singled out for criticism 
more than any other country has been singled out, more than all countries singled out combined. And that's when you have the Syrian civil war, when you have Iran stringing up people uh, and, and throwing them into, into jail for criticizing the, the government, when you have um, Saudi Arabia locking up dissidents and, and uh, whipping them in public for, for daring to say that society should be secular. And so there, there's this real dis, uh, phenomenon of the UN is run by and for these dictatorial and theocratic governments. And I think that's what Ayn Rand's insight about the moral, fundamental moral failing of the UN really helps us understand these sorts of crazy situations. I think the other one you mentioned to me the other day that uh, Saudi Arabia was, was nominated to become a part of, uh, I think it was a committee or a council concerning women. So just, what's the backstory for that? Uh, yeah, so this is, seems like a joke, but it's actually not because it's just so ridiculously absurd. So um, there's a wing within the UN called, generally referred to, referred as uh, UN women. And uh, there are like several like sub bodies there, but um, it's generally, it's dedicated to protecting specifically the rights of women across the globe. And as it turns out, they elected Saudi Arabia of all countries to be leading this, this wing of, of the UN, UN women. And for those who don't know, Saudi Arabia is one of the worst places for women to live in the world. There is absolutely no freedom for women there. And I, I can speak forever about this. I'm just going to mention uh, a few things. And uh, I actually wrote an article about how the UN is uh, complicit in the, the crimes against women that are committed in Saudi Arabia. And you can find that in our website, New Ideal. Um, but part of it is there, there's this... Um, there's this system in, in Saudi Arabia where women are not able to do absolutely anything without the permission of, uh, their, of, of a male, like whether it's a father or it's a, it's a brother or someone in the family that it's a male. Women are not allowed to do absolutely anything to work, to go to school without this permission and to do anything of significance for their life, they need the, the, the permit of, of, of a man, which is called the guardianship, guardianship system. Uh, there is segregation between men and women. There are separate places that women can, uh, like there are separate places like in parks where women have to go, like separated from the men. Women, if they wanna go shopping, for instance, they cannot try on clothes because it's offensive and it's blasphemous to, uh, this robe near, even remotely near the presence of men. Um, there's just this horrible oppression that women try to escape every day. And there's a story that happened in 2019 that made the headlines of this young uh, uh, Saudi teenager that escaped uh, Saudi Arabia and was almost, almost killed by it. And um, well, I don't think we have time to really go into that story, but it's, it's in my article. And she, but her, 
account of what she lived in Saudi Arabia is just horrific. And one of the things she says, for instance, is that she was locked in a room for six months by her own family because she dared to cut her hair because it is a sin to look like, quote, look like a man in, for a woman in Saudi Arabia. And she said, like, if I was, if I was forced to go back to Saudi Arabia after I escaped, I would have ended my life because that is no, absolutely no way to live. And yet we have this regime put in charge of this wing of the UN called UN Women and dedicated to protecting uh, the rights of women around the world. That is just, what do you expect to happen when, when Saudi Arabia is in charge? Do you really expect that they will defend the rights of women across the globe when they are one of the worst violators in the world? I don't think that's exactly what you could expect from it. And this is what Rand Manuel, she said, you're putting gang members in charge of the crime fighting committee. That's exactly right, what she said. Yeah, my, my expectation is that what Saudi Arabia will do, and uh, which is what a lot of the countries like it do when they gain power, is that they then bring out the claim that it's a kind of multicultural claim. Well, we have our own standards. You can't judge us by your standard. That's not fair. Why should you impose your values on us? And, and they, in effect, there's no answer to that in the UN, because on the UN's uh, perspective, you the organization has to be morally neutral towards membership, and it has to. The, and I think the extension of that is, well, how could you then suddenly decide that what we do with our women is wrong, but what you do is right? And I think the UN is in a position where there isn't an answer to that, uh, precisely because of this moral, this amoralism, really, at the core of what the UN is about. Uh, you know, I think you. I think it's more, in one of your articles too. You mentioned how the you describe the degree to which China today is at war with freedom of speech. And people might remember the very beginning of the pandemic. There was a Chinese doctor who was trying to speak out about this. He was officially reprimanded, and I think he. Uh, it was only after he died. I think he committed suicide. Is that right? I forget exactly what happened to him. No, no, he died of COVID. Oh, <laughs> That's he, right. He died of COVID. Died, there was somebody else who committed suicide. He died of COVID, and it was only after this. And people on social media in China, to the extent they can speak out, because that's a very censored medium there, they brought. They were there was such anger over this. Here's someone who was trying to warn us, and then he died of the the disease that he was warning us about. He died of COVID nineteen. Then the Chinese government made him a martyr after the fact, and not really. I don't know what, what difference it makes to apologize to someone after they've been killed and, and and publicly humiliated for trying to do the right thing. But that's just a tiny example of how the Chinese government controls speech. Now imagine, and this is, you don't have to imagine, you can just look at the, the lives of some of the dissidents in China and what's happening to people in Hong Kong right now as China is expanding its reach over that, uh, that space. So China is a, I mean, this is not a compliment, but it's a world-class destroyer of freedom of speech within its own borders. And I mean, I've heard stories of people who have had books pulled uh, because of what the content of the books are. There are things you don't say in public. There are things you don't say in a classroom if you're a teacher. So the people treading on eggshells, to, to put it mildly. And yet here is 
China, as we've said earlier, it is a, a member in good standing at the UN. And the fact that it is a destroyer of freedom of speech, a value that the UN claims to uphold according to its founding principles, you know, th that is a fundamental contradiction. How can you have a senior member of an organization that it's on the Security Council as, as of uh, 50 years ago, and it is a gross violator of the very principles it's supposed to be upholding and embodying and modeling for the rest of the world. So there's a deep moral corruption. And, I, I, and to, the, to the, you know, we mentioned that there are critics of the UN who think that there are reforms that can solve a lot of the problems. I, I think part of the issue, we didn't really get to talk about them, but maybe people can join us on Clubhouse or ask some questions if they want. But part of the issue with those kinds of critiques, and, and some of them are, are really thoughtful and in detail, and so these are serious problems that people are surfacing about the budgeting and, and some of the inefficiencies and even small-scale moral corruptions, even large-scale moral corruption in terms of some of the peacekeeping and so on. None of these problems really are solvable if the, the organization is fundamentally broken morally, like if it has no sense of the moral difference between a dictatorship and a free society, if they both get equal standing. It is in fact a, an instrument for enabling dictatorships. I mean, there's no way around that. There's no benefit to the free countries in being part of an organization like this. Uh, and I think this is, there's no way that some of these reforms can, even conceivably begin to solve the fundamental problem. So, I mean, I have sympathy for people who are upset about those problems, but I challenge the fundamental premise that they hold, which is the UN is basically good. We just have to trim off some of the, the rough edges. Uh, so I, I think that, I mean, there's one other aspect of Rand's perspective that we, I think we can fit in today. There's, there's more to say, but I, I think there's one other aspect that's worth talking about. And, uh, it has to do with this issue of, I think you touched on it earlier with, with membership of these freer countries in the UN and what that really looks like. And, and the argument is that we all benefit from being at the UN. There's all sorts of benefits. What do you think of that? I do not think uh, that that is true. I don't think that we all benefit from, from uh, being part of the UN or for, from the existence of the UN. I think that uh, the, this issue of this compromise that the UN uh, fosters between evil regimes, because they're evil dictatorships, and, uh, and free, essentially free countries or semi-free countries as, as sometimes uh, Rand, Rand uh, referred to, the cooperation between these two, uh, the consequence is just that, that these free countries have absolutely nothing to gain from, from evil dictatorships. But these evil dictatorships have a lot to gain, to gain from them, including this, like you were just saying, this moral uh, legitimacy by sitting at the same table as these, as these regimes, as if they were morally equal, and something that we've been talking about a lot today. Uh, but also, they benefit, for instance, from a lot of the, of the free countries. So free countries are, for, for a very good, for, for a reason, free countries are the ones that uh, 
fund the UN the most in the, in the highest percentages. For example, the US is the highest uh, uh, contributor, let's say, to the budget of the UN. And this, this, uh, these dictatorships benefit from all, from, from that, for example, they benefit because they receive aid from the UN, which is funded by these free countries. And it doesn't matter that, the, that they stand against everything that the UN, that the US stands for. It doesn't matter, they receive because they're just, they are part of the UN and they need help. And, you know, like Rand said, like in, a, in any compromise between good and evil, it's always evil that will benefit. Good has nothing to gain from it. And, and I think she put it in a way that she said, between a, a, a compromise between like food and poison, it's, even if your food has a little bit of poison, it's still poison and you're gonna, if you eat it, you're gonna, you're gonna die or you're gonna get really sick. So there's absolutely nothing to gain for, uh, for free countries from the UN. And meanwhile, the evil countries get a stage, they get prestige, they get, uh, they get a blind eye for their, uh, from the UN for their egregious crimes that they commit. And on top of that, they get to put in charge and they get to put it put in they get they get put in positions of power that allow them to do all kinds of atrocities and to look the other way when there are other gang members and other regimes that gang up against free countries commit other atrocities so i don't think there's honestly anything to gain for uh, moral and free countries from the un yeah and uh, you know she, i know it has a, a an interesting uh, observation that comes out in uh, Atlas Shrugged in particular, this idea of the sanction of the victim. So that the, the good enables evil through not treating it as evil and pretending or, or treating it as if it's better than it is. And there are many manifestations of this in the novel for people who've read it, or if you haven't read it, go, go read it. And, and I think some of the, I think the story of Hank Reardon is a particularly dramatic one in a personal setting, his relationship with some of the people in his life. But on a larger scale in the book, this issue is dramatized in many, many different ways, politically and, and socially, and how it is that the, the people who create value, who are working to achieve things in life and in, in the context of international relationship, international relations, I think it would be countries that are basically free and enable people to act that way. They, I think one of the problems with, so I asked you the question, is there anything that they gain? And I guess if I turn that around, it's what's really the cost here or how, how to think about the damage of being in the UN, what that does to you. So I think being for, for the countries that are still part of the UN and don't, aren't questioning it and don't recognize its, its basic flaw, I think that they are enabling some of the worst countries in the world. They're, they're enabling countries that are hostile in some cases. Like if you think about Iran, which is hostile to many countries, not just the US. If you think about North Korea, which is hostile and it sells weapons and it's, it's a terrible regime. Uh, it's something that people risk their lives to flee. Or Cuba, or so many others around the world that are part of the UN. The US is propping up a regime, uh, an organization that makes those regimes seem better. And that makes it harder for us in the world. Like it's better if North Korea is not the way it is. It would be better for the people in North Korea, better for us. We have to deal with the crazy leadership there. And you can multiply that for every one of these countries that is gaining from being in the UN. And 
And sort of a, har a harsher point that is often overlooked is that by propping up this organization, the US is in some degree complicit with the crimes of the regimes that are in there. So if you put, uh, if you allow them in and you let them get away with this, you let them uh, deflect attention, then you are in effect helping them commit the crimes against their own people. So I think there's a there's moral uh, damage done in many directions that people aren't, don't appreciate. And I think Ayn Rand's analysis about the role of principles in thinking about an organization like the UN, the idea that uh, one should evaluate these countries morally by the standard of freedom and individual rights and what the consequences are of moral neutrality in the UN and just in general. And, and I think all of that is really illuminating about the, the things that we've, we've been presenting as this is so crazy, this is absurd. It, it is absurd, it's, it's a moral abomination and it's enabled by an organization that has this fundamental force. I think her analysis really shines a light on the sort of things that we're seeing at the UN and continually multiplying problems. Um, so I, we've gone on, on quite a bit. Let's see if we can take some of the questions that have come in and thanks for the, the super chat uh, contributions on YouTube. We appreciate your support and thank you for being with us today. Let's see some of these questions. And if we don't get to all of your questions, I should re remind people, uh, Agustin and I will be uh, hopping into Clubhouse in a few moments after we finish this live stream and we'll tell you a bit about how to join uh, in a few moments. So there's a question um, here. Um, Comment then a question. The UN is an evil farce that sanctions murder and torture. The question is, what will it take for there to be any change? Are there any hopeful signs? Do you want to start on that one? Uh, sure. Yeah, um, I don't think so. I don't think there are any hopeful signs. Um, there has been effort. There have been efforts to reform the UN, uh, especially pushed by um, uh, the U.S. and within the U.S. by uh, conservatives mostly. There was one relatively big one uh, under the second uh, Bush administration. I mean George W. Bush. Uh, that didn't come to be, but it was a, it was a concerted effort. I think. Yeah, it was around 2006, I believe it was. But um, and you will find some of the harshest critics of the UN. Um, they even think that there is hope for solving uh, these issues and for, and and for to make the UN work. Let's say uh, you have, for example, Nikki Haley, who is well, this obviously this very prominent conservative politician. And she was ambassador to, uh, for, uh, to the UN for the United States for a couple of years under the Trump administration. And I read her latest book that came out a couple of years ago and she talks about her experience in the UN and what she says is like, wow, you, you get like an inside look of how like, deeply corrupt the UN is. And you expect her to say, we should just withdraw. And like under the Trump administration, we withdrew from the Human Rights Council, which I think it was actually a good idea. And Elan, you wrote an article about it too. But you expect her to say, like, after all these atrocities that she that she talks about in the book that happened in the UN, you expect her to say, we should just withdraw from all of it because this is just horrific what's going on here. 
But no, she does say it. And I think the way she puts it is there is a glimmer of hope or a ray of hope, one of those expressions like that, and we can fix the UN. And I actually do not think that is true. I think she's wrong and about that. And I think she, like most uh, conservative uh, critics that have this view that it can be fixed, they're all wrong because it's corrupted from the core. There is nothing to do to fix it. In fact, if you wanted to expel Russia and China, for instance, the, these charter members, you can, because uh, the UN charter does not allow to expel these charter members. They would have to vote for their own uh, expulsion to the UN to be expelled. So that's obviously never gonna happen. So there is there's no way to, there is no hope for the UN in my opinion. And I don't know what, if you think differently than probably not, but that's what I have to say about that. I don't think there are people pushing for the right kind of changes. And I think that the right kind of changes would have to include a understanding of what the moral problem is and then just and the idea that the, if you're going to take seriously the idea of stopping wars and, and protecting individual rights, it, it can't include countries that do that on a massive scale and are looking for ways to cover that up. So that perspective, which I think comes really clearly from Ayn Rand, I think that would be a necessary understanding and it doesn't have to be understood quite as as clearly but just some assessment of the un as an immoral organization and i think that the the, the major challenge to getting there is th there's i think a fear of really questioning its moral standing because it's it's seen as well it's doing good for people all around the world and how could you challenge what everyone agrees is a good thing and and i, I think that's put it more broadly, people have difficulty questioning the moral assumptions that exist in the world that they often accept. And, and that's part of what Ayn Rand is, is urging us to do across a whole range of issues, not just the UN. And that kind of questioning and, and premise checking is what would be needed as a step towards, uh, I mean, I think you would have to just raise it to the ground and start from something fresh and, and wholesome. I don't think it can be improved. So anything I say about it, changes here would be, it would be steps towards removing better countries from the UN as a step, as a first step. And then in thinking about, well, what would be a good organization? Is there a need for something like this? What would it look like? Then I think you would start from, okay, well, let's decide on who gets to join as a, as a, as a primary question. Uh, we can let's take, take a couple more questions. One. Yeah, yeah, I think we have time for one more. Um, and I'd like to take this one. Um, do we have to differentiate between human rights and individual rights to make the difference clear? Do you wanna start with that one? I don't, you, I might've said the, the words uh, human rights and that's partly because I was echoing the, the way the UN uh, documents talk about this issue. I don't like that term. I don't think it's useful. I prefer the term, and this is the one Ayn Rand recommends. She uses it, it's individual rights. And, and even then she says, it's a necessary redundancy because it, the only rights that it can exist are for individuals. But for the sake of clarity and, and, and given the confusions around the issue of rights, 
she talks of individual rights. So I, I don't think it's useful to differentiate human versus individual. It really are just individual rights. And this goes to an issue that I think, I wish we had had time to talk about. It wasn't within scope, but it's, it's relevant to thinking about one of the things the UN has done that uh, uh, has contributed to the confusion over the issue of rights. So an agency, an international organization committed to protecting freedom and rights has actually contributed to confusion. And that is the kinds of things the UN has put under the heading of human rights. If you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's a fascinating document because some of the claims in it for what are human rights, and this is the UN's term again, are things you can defend as actually things that individuals need to live and flourish. And then there is a, a grab bag of other things that are in effect claims on the, on the lives of others and the wealth of others. So these are the sort of things that we think of as welfare benefits in this country or things that the government hands out. So I think there's, I forget all the details, but things like the right to a, a decent job and the, the right to personal, um, I think there's even vacation in there. So I, I'm not remembering it exactly right now, but it, I, it would be good to do a, a, a podcast just on that whole issue of how the UN thinks of rights. And the result is that you get, well, one result is an inflation of rights. So all these things are seen as rights and some of them actually are, and many of them are not. And the result is that it, it, it cheapens and, and, and dilutes what actually needs to be protected, which are the fundamental, the right to your life. And you are having the competence and the, the, the judgment to live the life that you design for yourself and that you want. And then the consequences of that are that you need to be free to speak your minds, the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly, the sort of things that we now are, understand better thanks to the, the US constitution, which I think is excellent at articulating the key rights. But then, uh, th so that's the sort of thing that needs to be understood and having uh, the, inflation of rights by the UN has really done a lot of damage in, in making people think that they have claims that they don't have claims and that it creates conflict. And this is, uh, this is really problematic. So I, that's another reason to step away from the idea of the UN's conception of human rights, because it, it, it's a, what Ayn Rand would call a package deal. It, it, it brings together things that are not essentially the same and that many of them are different and have different status. And it, it clouds your thinking when you use one of these kinds of terms. And, it, it, and the result is it, it prevents you from actually supporting the, the valid claims to individual rights that they should be upheld. And it would be great if nations around the world treated the actual individual rights as principles that everyone should be judged by and, and upheld. That's not happening. And I think the UN has some blame uh, to, to shoulder on that regard. Yes, I agree with all that. And uh, to what you said, um, if you look at basically any uh, covenant by the UN, um, you will find all these rights, like second gen, as they call it, second generation and third generation rights. Um, and like you can look at the ICCPR, for instance, which is the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, which guarantees right, like you said, rights that predate on uh, other people's pro uh, property and, and, and work. And it's and because of that, 
influence and because of this international covenant success that protect these so-called rights, which, which from our perspective, objective perspective, they're not rights. Um, a lot of countries have adopted those, uh, those, those covenants as example and have incorporated those rights even to their own constitutions. So it's, it's a problem. And then when these uh, countries ratify this type of covenant, these rights have to be uh, taken seriously by those countries and they have to actually protect them. So it's, it has very real uh, consequences, bad consequences uh, for, for these countries that adopt this type of uh, covenants from the UN. So uh, we are on time and um, I would like to thank everyone again for their super chat donations. And like Elan mentioned before, uh, we're gonna be on Clubhouse right after the podcast on the Ayn Rand Club to discuss a little bit more of the things that we have been talking here about today. And there you can participate and, and, and ask us questions and give your opinion and all that. So um, some of the resources that we uh, talked about today, um, this, there's this essay by Ayn Rand called The Anatomy of Compromise, which you can find in uh, her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. She, talks about the UN is not a, uh, an essay on the UN, but she talks uh, quite a bit on it. And there's a lot of places where Iron Man talks about the UN. She doesn't have one specific talk or essay where she does, but uh, this is one of the most important ones. Then the Iron Man lexicon entry uh, on foreign policy has a lot of information on Iron Rand's, on Rand's views on the UN and also on her views of what a proper foreign policy is for the United States. And then uh, there's this article by Yuelan, uh, the UN Sanskrit attacks on Israel, which talks about a lot about the um, HRC, the Human Rights Council, and how they uh, single out Israel, even though it's one of the freest countries in the world, and how they turn a blind eye towards the rest of the members that are egregious violators of individual rights. And then there's an article uh, that it published last year called How the UN Whitewashes uh, China's Crashing of Free Speech, which uh, accounts all the violations of free speech uh, done by China, especially uh, uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic started and how the UN effectively turned a blind eye to them and just basically did not care and how uh, they actually enable these to keep happening. And the result is that the UN I think is as much as China an enemy of free speech, even though they bow to protect this right. Um, so for next week's episode, we're gonna have um, Onkar Gatte and Ben Bayer discussing the topic, why are object objectivists so negative? So I think this is gonna be a really interesting and fun discussion. So uh, next Wednesday at regular time, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific to p.m. Eastern. And then how to follow us. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please uh, subscribe to our channel, uh, click the bell uh, to get notifications when, when we upload new content or when, or where, uh, when we go live. And uh, please also like, share, and comment on this video to help attract attention to our channel. And likewise, if you're watching on Facebook, please like and share this video. And if you have any questions or comments, uh, please uh, send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. 
and we always read and uh, very often answer uh, your emails and sometimes we take your suggestions for episode topics for this podcast so with that said thank you everyone for joining us thank you Elan, for being here today and see you in a few minutes in clubhouse you've been listening to new ideal a podcast from the ayn rand institute if you like what you hear leave us a review share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.